This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Welcome to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor for Federal News Network. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yes. Well, this is, uh, I think, uh, the first show coming back. Um, we've been on a little hiatus with regard to COVID-19. Um, and, of course, you're going to be my first guest back. And so I think one of the first things I want to do is just talk about what you're seeing out there in the market in terms of how the government's operating, what you're hearing from contractors, um, and I'll share some of my you know, experiences as well. So, Jason? I think it was a rough going at first. I think there was a big kind of adjustment that happened over the first few weeks. But what I've seen recently, and I'm talking last week or two, is I think the associations like yourself, like the Coalition for Government Procurement and others in the market, as well as feds more generally, have really kind of settled into more of a routine where they understand how to work remotely, how to get things done. Federal News Network conducted a survey a couple weeks back of federal employees. And one of the questions we asked was, you know, what's, what are some of the benefits about working for remotely or working from home? And of course, a lot of people said, oh, well, there's no more commuting. You know, I love the fact that I can walk five steps to my uh, uh, dining room table and, and, and I'm logged in and I'm there. But, but the two things that, that really surprised me is number one is uh, how much work they can get done remotely really surprised a lot of federal uh, employees, according to our survey. And the other thing that surprised me was they're actually probably working a little bit harder than they were expecting to. And they think their coworkers are working a little bit harder than they expected them to. So this idea of, well, if you work from home, you goof off, you don't do, you don't do anything all day. You, you take long lunches and, and take naps and whatever else. It's just not true. Now, I'm putting a blanket on that, Roger. So you know that there's probably someone somewhere who heard about somebody who knows somebody who took a long nap every day from, you know, noon to three. But my point is I think feds generally speaking are working as hard, if not harder from home and are enjoying it. The opposite is the contractors and you have a much better view into this than I do. But the, the things I'm hearing from contractors are number one, Roger, I do have to complain. Uh, if I get one more press release, one more pitch from a PR firm that says, hey, do you want to talk to our really smart person about COVID-19 or about why cybersecurity during remote working is important? I'm going to pull what's left of my hair out. I understand it's their job and I support them of that, but enough already. I had one pitch recently about talking about Zoom. Hey, guy, the Zoom problem was three weeks ago or four weeks ago. We're we're past it. We figured it out. Anyways, uh, I find that vendors, generally speaking, are also falling into a routine of finding their space Agencies are doing a better job of communicating. Uh, GSA, for instance, just the other day, uh, our favorite agency that we'll talk a lot about today, put out an updated guidance about onboarding vendors. And the initial guidance from a few weeks ago said, don't expect to have IT uh, or you know, laptops and devices from the GSA IT. The latest uh, memo, the update to that memo said, no, we will. We have plenty of laptops to give you. If, if you deserve one, if you need one, according to your contract, we'll give you one. So I think that just shows you the, the changes that's been happening and the adjustments that we're all making. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating to watch how the organizations and, and individuals have changed, you know, their behaviors in a lot of ways and how, and their, you know, the normal operations. I think part of it, when you talk about folks are working harder, well, I mean, your commute is a lot shorter, right? If you get up and go downstairs and then you can turn on that computer and, you know, you're right there and you're at work, you can, you dive right into it immediately. You know, you don't have that hour commute, you know, from like Vienna, Virginia to downtown or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, people are spending more time actually, you know, in front of their computers working rather than in their car or on the metro, you know, going getting there. Um, clearly. And the fact that you're available, you know, pretty much, you know, 24 seven, I wouldn't, you know, that's might be a bit of an exaggeration, but you are there and there's always opportunities to be doing something I've found with regard to work. Um, you know, our experience with regard to the virtual world is, 
um, lots and lots of uh, webinars and you know, virtual committee meetings around what the government's immediate response was to COVID-19. Um, you know, there was a thirst on the part of companies to try to understand the Defense Production Act, what it meant for them, what's a rated order, you know, what's an essential service or essential employee or, you know, essential function that a contractor may be performing, all kinds of initial questions. And we literally had thousands of people sign up for our webinars in that first month. Um, so and we were able to do that just because of technology, right? So that, I mean, I, we saw that and I think you're absolutely right. We're back in a sort of normal sort of operational tempo a bit in, in a virtual world. And now what we're starting to see, or I'm starting to see is lots of questions about, you know, where we go from here. You know, what does it mean you mentioned GSA and onboarding? You know, there's questions about government employees coming back. You know, how's that going to work? You know, how does infrastructure change in a building for social distancing? There's questions about that. There's lots of questions uh, from contractors who have to go onto a facility about how they're opening up. What is the protocol going to be? You know, how are they going to be able to meet with their customers? You know, the VAs, that's a big issue at the VA for their hospitals and medical care facilities. You know, so that so what we're really starting to see is lots of conversation about how that process is going to work, and and how how people are, what the expectations are, um, and what they'll need to do to be able to gain access either as an employee of the government or you know as a contractor or you know someone going onto a facility. And it's kind of interesting dynamic, and it's something I think we're going to be focusing on a lot because that goes to the you know business operations, right? And like, you know, and especially if you need to get onto the VA facility to talk about a treatment or something you have that could take care of veterans, right? And, you know, a lot of that's being somewhat done remotely now, but, but you know, lots of things shut down in, in the context of COVID-19 and then trying to start them back up. It's going to be a whole new set of operational uh, requirements. And that's what we're seeing. Lots of questions about that. One of the things that stood out to me is how the procurement shops have shifted. I've talked to GSA, NIH, NASA Soup, all about their how COVID has impacted their assisted acquisition or their contracting shops. And all three of them have said, we were already working remotely. We already knew how to work remotely. In fact, NASA Soup and NIH NITAC both have very similar experiences where for one reason or another, they had to move out of their current office space and begin to work remotely because of a structural problem or a fire and so they were already prepared for the COVID-19, and they've seen both an increase in traffic from in terms of agencies using their services and buying off their contracts, but they also haven't missed a beat of their employees who are ready for this. And I think that's a really a great testament, not only to the leadership of those organizations, but to the employees themselves who said, we need to get this stuff out the door, whether it's PPEs or masks or telework or laptops or whatever it is. And... and the other side of this, Roger, is the vendors I've heard from Suzette Kent, the federal CIO. I've heard from Julie Dunn over at the GSA's Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner, Joanne Wojtek, Keith Johnson from NIH. Joanne Wojtek, of course, is at Soup. They've all praised the vendor community and really have said that when they talk about industry and being partners, this is a true testament to the partnership there is. They can put aside the bid protests and the frustrations over lowest price technically acceptable contracting and, and all these kind of things that kind of meet our kind of give us that, that day-to-day itch or that day-to-day kind of look of uh, what the hell's going on to say, hey, when we had an emergency, we met the needs. And I think the, you, the coalition, I'm sure, has seen that with your membership too. Yeah, um, I, yeah, that's, I think, you know, you know, that thirst for understanding that I mentioned from contractors is, you know, how do they support or help? They're trying to understand, like, the authorities that the government um, is going to be utilizing uh, the operating tempo so that they can better react to support the effort. And I have to say too, from the, on the flip side, um, I think I talked about this in a bit in a blog is that, you know, the government um, has also, and acquisition professionals have really stepped up their game in terms of, you know, the, you know, uh, quickly issuing guidance, you know, being open to hearing from industry with regard to questions and answering those questions and, in um, that engagement and sharing as much information as quickly as possible about, 
know, how they were going to implement something or if they're going to waive a requirement and what it meant and, and so that folks could understand how to react to it. I think the government uh, has done a pretty good job of that in this case, is, you know, at least that's the feedback we've gotten. The, the other thing that I think has stood out to me over the last few m- weeks and, and months now is the shift to virtual people have really liked it. I'm not talking about necessarily the people who telework or people who are working remotely, but for instance, the Air Force uh, uh, head of their acquisition shop, Will Roper, talked recently at an event and said, not only have we shifted all these industry engagements to virtual, we're going to continue to have virtual engagements when things, quote unquote, go back to normal. I I think he said that that we've really enjoyed it. We really think it's helpful. Uh, There's a lot of pluses to it. Uh, He said we still may have in-person events, but everything will be virtual uh, and in-person will be the exception, not the rule, while virtual will be the rule. And I think we've seen that also with the Homeland Security Department. They just announced a set of virtual industry days around the first source contract. GSA has a couple industry days coming up around uh, that are virtual as well. And I think that's the big change that we're also, that's the long lasting change, I think, is is the, the understanding that, hey, these Zoom calls, these you know, Microsoft Teams calls, they aren't so bad. Yeah, yeah, there's always someone like you, Roger, who forgets to mute themselves. But come on, we, we know the, the truth here. Well, yes, I do have problems with technology. You know, I, you know I, I, I would just, my only caveat on this is there's, there's, there's balance in everything. And, you know, you know, you can have a reaction and go too far one way to a virtual world versus an in-person world. And I... Um, I'm guessing I'm a little bit old school. Um, there should be a good blend of it. I don't think there's anything better than, you know, face-to-face conversations, engagement. It's, I think that promotes better understanding. I mean, I think it actually promotes empathy and that you're, you're with a person, you're listening to their position. And if you're truly listening, you may not agree with it, but, you know, it's, it's a conversation. And, you, and it, I think you better appreciate uh, different positions that way. And, it's, and I think it's a huge learning tool to actually have face-to-face meetings. I would hate to see it become a completely virtual world, um, you know, that being said. So, I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll get to the right balance. I mean, I would say we've had good experience back during Oasis and Alliant where we had virtual industry days that we supported on behalf of GSA and those were very, very successful. And they're part of the tool in the toolbox, but we also had the procurement folks come in person. Um, and that was really appreciated by industry as well. So uh, Jason, I see we're up on the time. When we come back, I guess we've talked enough about COVID in the world we live in now, virtual world we live in now. Let's talk about some, some of the ongoing procurement um, uh, procurements and policy interest out there, whether it's um, e-commerce or the schedules modernization, that sort of thing, when we come back, okay? My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor at Federal News Network, and uh, Jason, uh, I promised uh, that we in this segment we not talk about COVID nineteen and or the virtual world we live in now, and talk about some some procurement issues. So I'm going to actually give you three letters, and I'm just let you go. GSA. Where to start? So let let me. I always like to preface all my comments about GSA to say uh, one of the, one of the most important agencies in government doesn't get enough credit for all the work they do. Uh, if, if it was up to me, if I was, if I was uh, king for the day, president for the day, whatever you want to call it, uh, I would make the most important, my, my first person I would uh, appoint is the head of GSA. Before DOD, before Homeland Security, before Treasury, before uh, even my vice president, maybe. But that's, I'm not. That's, that's, that's saying something. So uh, as a GSA alumni or... <laughs> Or more per, you know, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. <laughs> but but I'm not going to be that person. So uh, we'll we'll talk okay. about all the things that GSA can improve upon now instead. Okay. <laughs> uh, let let me start with one thing that that you and I actually both wrote about recently. And I have to say, Roger, we did not coordinate this discussion. You, you are all, all, often somebody who I turn to for comments and, and insights and and help on stories. 
but this one just happened to you and I for some reason found the same wave same wavelength. And, and the, the topic here is really around unpriced schedules, competition at the task order level, whatever we want to call it. I, I wrote a recent piece where I said it's time to get back on my soapbox. I apologize to our, our good friend Mary Davy, who's seen me on the soapbox way too many times during our, our, our time covering this. And I said, listen, it, you know, you've seen two big procurements that are just on hold because of bid protests over not allowing seemingly qualified companies onto a, the contract. This is the 2GIT, second generation IT, which is replacing the NetSense 2 contract. It's worth $5.5 billion. It's a government-wide blanket purchase agreement, so not a GWAC, right, Roger? Not right. every Mac, so GWAC, and all GWACs or Macs, whatever we want to say. But the point here is, is 13 protests, including five new ones or four new ones on that contract. And then you have the Alliant 2 Small Business which has been on hold for more than a year now since awards. And there's no, and, and, and GSA continues to say publicly soon, we'll have some more information soon. And we're, and again, you know, in government talk, Roger, that means one day to six months is soon. And right. there's a lot of That's frustration a- and we're five years into Alliance to small business since the initial draft RFP came out. And, and again, I go back to, if you just said, here's the minimum qualifications just show me you're not two women in a garage who's never done government work before, who's never done any work before. Show me that you have certain processes and things in place. They can let everybody on and then let the competition happen at the task order level. And, and I think that's, to me, is, is, is one of those frustrations that comes up when we see all these bid protests like 2GIT and the delays with Alliance Small Business too. Well, I, I am, you know, Jason, I um... – you know, the focus of my um, recent writing on on price schedules is in the context of the schedules program. And that, um, you know, with regard to services, GSA's had, you know, specific statutory authority for now 21, 22 months, going on 22 months, almost two years now we're working towards, um, since it received the authority from Congress to do, you know, to negotiate contracts without considering price at the contract level for schedules and then let the competition for services happen at the task order level for specific requirements. So it's two, almost two years and there's been no public movement and whether it's a proposed rule, any kind of guidance or anything or implementation um, that GSA has done. And I, I don't, you know, I think certain point, you know, folks are scratching their heads as to why, you know, that hasn't happened. This would have been a perfect part of, you know, the schedules modernization effort that's ongoing right now. Great opportunity to have folded that into it. Um, you know, and actually the title of the section in the NDAA that authorized it is about, you know, the title says increasing competition at the task order level. Well, we're all for that. Um, you know, and, and why GSA hasn't moved forward on it is, um, I think, something that is, um, I think people are scratching their heads at this point and trying to understand. It's a, it could be a game changer in terms of access to commercial services in the market. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's so much focus on price at the contract level. I think it's at to the detriment of, and actually creates a barrier to entry especially when you look at services where two thirds of the orders under schedules are firm fixed price. So what is the dynamic and what role does that labor hour rate play in any event when people, when, you know, rightly people are competing and negotiating and awarding firm fixed price orders, you know, that's, and that's a situation where the risk, you know, the allocation of risk is more on the contract performance side than the government side. Right. And that's why, firm fixed price is more favored than a labor hour approach. So um, it would be great to see GSA, you know, move forward on that effort. Um, I think it could have great impact on improving access to commercial services under the schedules. Cause I, we hear from companies all the time that they won't offer their latest service or latest capability initially on the, on the schedules because of the pricing issues surrounding it. Um, and that again goes to my old favorite, you know, the price reduction clause, the young price schedule concept would eliminate the need for what is basically a clause that restricts the ability of companies to compete in the private sector. So, um, 
you know, and I, I just got on my soft for a few minutes there. I appreciate that, Jason. But we're back on letters, GSA. What else are you focusing on these days? The other thing that obviously we're, we're, I think we're all paying close attention to is uh, obviously the schedule consolidation. You brought up this idea of schedules and unpriced schedules. Uh, GSA is making obviously a real progress to consolidate. They put out the um, the new consolidated solicitation back in January. They've started to move vendors, current schedule holders, onto the the current solicitation. Um, and I'm I'm hearing you know no feedback in terms of nothing bad is happening. People aren't complaining as far as I know. Uh, so I think that's obviously a good sign. And I think uh, from an agency perspective, who use the schedules, they're gonna, uh, if you will, see huge advantages starting. Uh, I guess in fiscal 2021 for the for the for the consolidation. Uh, so that's one thing we're watching. And then at the same time, uh, all the technology that kind of feeds the schedule system, including uh, the entire integrated acquisition environment. There's continued concerns around beta.sam.gov, and there's continued concerns. Uh, around the new FPDS reports feature that they've just added uh, to the integrated acquisition environment. And now I do have to give the folks at GSA, Judith Zawaski specifically some credit. They learned from their tough experience with beta.sam.gov transition and not to turn off the old FPDS ad hoc reports. I have to admit, Roger, I've never used those reports, but I know a lot of people do. And they said that, so they have, GSA has both FPDS old and FPDS new reports running in parallel. So you, if you run them or, or your folks run them, they can compare the two and, and tell GSA what's working and what's not and learn, to, and learn to improve the system. So a lot of good credit to them for having good customer experience and, and customer feedback loops. Yeah, we do run those reports and that's been, you know, a huge for us that they, they kept the capability in place. So yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. Yeah, with regard to the benefits of schedules consolidation, I think, you know, again, the, you know, the, the missing piece or the linchpin of that is actually is pricing reform of the schedules. You know, you can reform the contracts, consolidate to structure to promote solutions, uh, access to commercial solutions um, out there. But if you, but if the underlying policy is one that, you know, undercuts the ability to get solutions by driving a low-priced, low-priced, technically acceptable approach, and you know, dividing up um, cost components in a manner that undercuts the solution approach. Um, you know that that needs to be addressed if you want to, re, you know, the, to achieve the full potential of a schedules consolidation to deliver best value mission support for customer agencies. You know the the pricing uh, policies do need to be reformed and addressed. I mean, let's let's face it they they fundamentally date date from the 1980s. The 1980s. We're working on 40 years here, and you know they've been you know adjusted around the margins, but not, never fundamentally reformed. One of the things that comes up is when you talk about the price reduction clause and prices more broadly. There was a move at one point, or at least some feeling within GSA. To, to move out of the price reduction clause, the TDR pilot, right? And we know that the TDR pilot is still ongoing, but there's not a lot of emphasis about it. You don't hear GSA talk about it. Is there still the feeling that we need the price reduction clause or only by certain people who have three other letters called OIG? So just to, to put the price reduction clause in contact, it's like a most favored nation clause in a commercial type provision that provides that if you offer a particular customer a lower price, then I, the government, get that same price. Uh, so it creates a tie to the commercial market. That's what I mean by the fact that it restricts your ability to compete in a commercial market because for certain customers, you have to think about, do, can I afford to give an additional price concession to the government if I give it to somebody who's covered by the clause? You know, and that's, you know, the, the, the putting the clause in context, it was created and implemented, like I said, in the 1980s at a time when there were only products on schedule. Schedules were mandatory use. Um, and there were, you know, hundreds of contractors, not tens wow. of thousands of contractors and millions of products on schedule. Um, now the schedules are optional for use. They have those 
thousands of items. They have electronic catalog. They have a task order, uh, task order competition tool, eBuy. And they also have new ordering procedures that were mandated by statute that require competition at the task order level. So you have a regulatory framework at, for task order competitions that's fundamentally different than it was in the 1980s. You have a marketplace that's fundamentally different in terms of additional choice and opportunity. You have the internet that exists, right? You have, and you, they're not mandatory schedules. Um, it's a completely different dynamic. Um, so the, yeah, it, so the fear somehow that the government was not going to get a good deal in a very closed, limited, marketplace of the 1980s has fundamentally changed and the clause just makes no sense the only thing it really does at the end of the day is and this is based on gsa's own statistics they said you know, where it doesn't it's it, the vast majority of price increases are driven by market changes not by the price reduction clause you know the only thing it does is inhibit a company's ability to compete in the private sector um, and you know, I know, uh, you know, this is one of my favorite topics. As you know, Jason, you, you did this to me on purpose. But I know now we do have to take our next break. Um, so when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the federal market, maybe some e-commerce, maybe looking at some of the other major procurements out there. I'm Raj Walter. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. And um, I guess, Jason, we'll keep on our three-lettered theme here a little bit and say GSA. And um, just your thoughts on the you know, current state of the e-commerce effort um, at GSA, the Section 846 sort of implementation. I think part of the good news is while it was paused initially at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic uh, emergency, uh, Julie Dunn told me uh, about a month ago that they have unpaused it and it's moving forward, which is obviously a good sign. Uh, we should see a contract, to, a contract award for the pilot program for the proof of concept you know, sometime this summer. When? Who knows? I mean, Roger, you know better than anyone else that contract awards, you know, best laid plans always fall, often fall through. But what I think hasn't been addressed, and I'll be interesting to see if, how GSA does address it, is how does this e-commerce platform approach still mesh with the White House's executive order? President Trump signed an executive order back in February regarding, uh, you know, take action against e-commerce platforms to, to deal with counterfeiting, to deal with intellectual property theft. Uh, you know, they actually called out platforms like Amazon and Alibaba and eBay and Walmart.com is, is a, a very concerning online platforms that maybe have an, what they call an ex, unacceptably high risk uh, to use. And now GSA is saying, let's use them. So I'll be interesting to see how that all works and how that comes together because I'm not sure GSA has, has answered that question. And I'm not sure if they know the answer to that question. You know, the folks I've talked to, uh, you know, to be honest, Roger, we're maybe a little surprised that the, that the executive order came out. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they were they expecting it or not expecting it. Um, but uh, it, it definitely there are two sides of a different coins going on here. Uh, what are you starting to hear about the e-commerce platform and, and, and the approach that GSA is taking? Well, I guess you know, Jason. I think I'm going to confirm what you just said in terms of industry trying to understand where GSA is going in the with the backdrop of you know, the executive order that you mentioned and DHS's report on e-commerce platforms and, you know, trying to address the security and counterfeit gray market issues around that. Um, and, and so what we, you know, what we've seen, you know, is a growing concern about that across industry. Um, and, you know, with specific, you know, DHS's report makes specific recommendations about, things that e-commerce platforms should be doing to ensure the integrity of market. And I'll just bring out one of them is basically the idea of make, this is just one of several, but it's one I think that highlights is easiest to understand is, you know, just identifying country of origin of products, right? Requiring that. And, you know, and then you look at GSA's, you know, solicitation, it doesn't require that. It only requires it if it's, if it's something that a particular offer offer or does as part of their business operations. So that means if you don't do it, you don't, you, this 
RFP doesn't compel you to re- to do that as part of performance and under under the e-commerce platform. Um, you know, and just you know, the in the DHS report and the executive order talk about much uh, tougher vetting of third-party suppliers and sellers um, and resellers on platforms, um, and also talk about some form of liability in certain cases for platform providers for um, trademark violations and things like that based on, you know, the, the vetting issue. Um, these are all real issues that we hear about all the time from companies who are in you know, the e-commerce world and are things. And here GSA, I think I have to say, GSA has a great opportunity to, in a certain sense, you know, move forward in a practical, uh, real-life way to address in a government contract these specific current concerns that, you know, the White House um, has expressed and, and stated in the executive order and DHS in its report. Um, but what we see in the RFP is the relaxation of requirements, at least in the latest amendment, where much of it is basically left to the contractor to decide how they're going to perform, and the requirements are more in terms of objectives as opposed to minimum mandatories. And it, and it leaves it to the commercial practice in many, many ways of a platform provider, which, you know, may or may not meet, you know, the DHS report requirements or the executive order requirements. And the last thing I'll say about this, it just goes to one of the fundamental you know, issues that we hear with this regard, and it's the, cre- the creation of two separate parallel procurement universes, one where compliance is required, you know, under the GSA schedules program for Trade Agreements Act in particular, um, and then another where uh, compliance is waived in a certain sense for a platform that's supposed to be a $6 billion annual platform, and there's no Trade Agreements Act compliance requirement. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, at the end of the day, that just means that you can buy as much non-TAA products and, you know, um, as you possibly want. And I, you know, that tend, will tend to create additional risk, risk to the government, um, uh, you know, risk to companies who see stuff uh, being, you know, counterfeited and that sort of thing and their intellectual property rights being um, violated. So I just as an opportunity to take a step back and look at this thing and, you know, implement it in a manner that's much more consistent with the White House's approach. The, I think the one piece you mentioned I think is really interesting is the liability. If an agency buys something off the market, is it the agency? Is it the government? Is it the industry partner? Is it the platform provider? Who who has that responsibility to ensure products are what they are and they're not counterfeit or gray market or, or there's something bad about them? Um, I, I guess the question for you as a procurement attorney, whose responsibility is it today? Is it, is well, it the agencies that is buying it? I mean, that seems logical. Um, so that's a, that's a great question, and it's, it's not an easy one to answer. So pretty straightforward on the GSA schedules contracts. You are contracts, you as a contractor on the schedules, you're contractually liable for um, the provision of, you know, the product and standing behind a product or service that you provide and ensuring that it's not, you know, counterfeit or gray, or you are authorized person to sell the product. Um, you know, the platform is more buyer beware as a, as a, as a operational dynamic in that, you know, there's no, um, GSA is not vetting under the e-commerce platform, vetting contractors. Um, and there's no fundamental requirement for the platform provider to vet the products that are being sold on its system. So, um, you know, in that case, you know, the, the problem is that they're you looking for a trusted marketplace. That's what the executive order and um, the DHS report are all about, a trusted marketplace where buyers and sellers can compete and, and conduct business. And, you know, GSA's platform, um, you know, should be revised to make it more consistent with, you know, that approach. Um, and I think that's the one missing piece here is how is GSA creating that trusted marketplace? And I think that's the unknown. I think GSA has some ideas, but I think there's a lot of people who, who have some questions about it too. So that's yeah. got to be fixed. Yeah. So, 
Um, so, and I know there's other procurements. I know you, you follow Jedi a lot. Can you tell us the latest on it? Still stuck in court. Uh, the latest is DOD has said they will take some uh, corrective action based on the Amazon complaint. Uh, the judge has approved, the Court of Federal Claims judge has, a, has said, okay, you take that corrective action. Uh, unfortunately, Amazon then has s- submitted a complaint following D- the DOD corrective action saying it's not enough action. It's not enough of a change. So uh, it's still hung up in, in the procurement bid protest hell that, that I think so many of these programs go through. You know, Roger, I wrote about this maybe a month and a half ago or so and said, you know, it's time for DOD to abandon Jedi and just ride the coattails of the CIA C2E procurement, which is a multi-cloud, very similar procurement as Jedi, but multi-cloud instead of single cloud. And one thing that still amazes me is why why is DOD's heels, so to speak, dug in so deep? I don't remember a time when an agency has dug in this deep on a procurement like this, knowing that there are both real problems and problems that just look bad, the optics of it. And, and I don't know if you can remember one that, that is similar. Um, geez, Jason, I'm trying to wreck my brain now, whether there is one that's similar that to my, um, I mean, even, even would you even say the, the tanker contract that got ugly was the, the DOD dig its heels on that? Cause that eventually got awarded and seems, you know, seems to be being built. Um, right. Right. You know, some of the other controversial programs that have been, you know, you know, there's a lot of programs that have been ended early because they failed or they had major problems. But I don't remember a procurement itself in the 20 plus years I've been doing this, that that where the, the fight has just gone on and on and on and on. And, you know, either the agency didn't eventually win out or B, the vendor didn't eventually give up of the fight. So, I, I, yeah, I think, Jason, to your point, you brought up the tanker and I think what the commonality between like the tanker situation and Jedi is, you know, what does the procurement mean for the marketplace? What does it mean for, you know, for the long-term competitive balance across that marketplace for cloud services? So when you structure something that's a single award contract um, that goes on for 10 years and, you know, is billions of dollars um, and is supposed to be the, key platform, you know, for DOD and in delivery of cloud services. And I know that they have lots of other contracts for cloud as well currently in place, but they're supposed to be like sort of the, you know, the, the leading edge contract for cloud services. And it's a single award like the tanker, a single award you're shut out. If you lose, you're shut out for a long time in theory. Right. So I think that has a lot to do with the ongoing, um, you know, litigation around the procurement, um, in terms of creating a, you know, and dealing with the competitive dynamic um, and implications and end results coming out of the procurement. So I, I think, I think the point you make about that there's already plenty of cloud contracts out there. The air force as an example is really pushing out on its cloud one initiative. The army is following suit. They're developing the enterprise IT as a service program. So I think by the time Jedi gets awarded, set up, even though Microsoft has started to do some work, who is the original wordy, a lot of that work has stopped. By the time they get set up, I think the other services are going to be like, yeah, I don't even need it. Even the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, Jake, has said, we need Jedi. And now they're moving to the Air Force cloud because they can't wait any longer. So I think it's a mess. And, 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 and the people who were initially supporting the move to Jedi have all got left. So I don't understand why... Uh, Dana Deasy, the DOD CIO, just doesn't stand up there and say, "Listen, we're gonna we're gonna recompete this in a different way. We're gonna move on and take take about a week's worth of lumps, and then people will forget about it." Um, well, with that note, Jason, I think we're up on the break. So uh, when we come back, we'll you know take a last look at the government market for this week, and um, you know take a look at. Uh, a couple other different items. I think we should talk about Section 889 a little bit and the implications for the market there. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. And Jason, um, another big issue, sort of structural issue going on right now, um, 
or not going on, as the case may be, is um, implementation of uh, Section 889, uh, which folks in the business refer to as the Huawei provision. That you know that it's a two-part sort of statute. It bans the purchase or the selling of Huawei equipment and other comp- Chinese companies, surveillance company um, type camera companies. Uh, product to the federal government, but it also has a portion of it which will, which is to be implemented under by law by August of this year, and that is the prohibition on contracting with companies who use Huawei equipment in their operations. And there's a there's a rule, a, 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 you know, there's those, these things are implemented right by rules in the FAR and that sort of thing. And to date, even though we have a statutory deadline for implementation of August, we have not yet seen um, any proposed rule, interim rule, any kind of rule. Um, you know, there's been lots of conversations. DOD had an industry day regarding the implementation of Section 889 just this spring, earlier. I think it was before, you know, it was back in March or February. Um, what are you hearing and, you know, about this and where things are going? It's interesting when, when I talk to, let's say, the technology community, because this is this type of rule will affect the technology community as much as it will affect the acquisition community, because so much of agencies' networks and infrastructures runs over these types of, of, of systems, whether it's Huawei or ZTE. And then, you know, there's a whole lot of talk about 5G and, and how much Huawei and ZTE are part of that. This does not come up as a concern or an issue or something that they're really too, too worried about uh, from a technology community. I think once that rule comes out, that's when people will start paying attention to it. Uh, I think it, it tends to happen. There's some sort of forcing function, an interim rule, a, a proposed rule, or some sort of, of change that's going to cause them, okay, I have to update my contracting. I have to pay attention to this. But but I think, Roger, your your point that, that this is happening very quickly and this is a much deeper uh, cut, if you will, into – the requirements than the initial one. The initial one was, you know, just don't contract for it. Just don't buy the stuff. But now this rule would say, don't use the stuff in any part of your supply chain, which we know is, is incredibly difficult because I don't think vendors for the most part have enough view into their the lower parts of their supply chain to, to guarantee nobody is, is using it. And I think, this opens the door for more litigation and, and more, more protests. And, and, you know, I know as a lawyer, Roger, you may think that's a good thing, but uh, you know, it, it's, I think it's going to, it's going to cause agency. Just to be a lot clear, of yeah. Just be clear. I don't practice law anymore. And I'm, but, but it will be, there's civil false claims act implications of this. When you, you have to certify that you don't use Huawei equipment in your operations, or there, there's a list of other companies as well. Um, yeah. This is, significant um rule um and you know and it will is fundamentally going to change operations um the fact that we're getting to june almost and the rule hasn't been issued you know it seems to me my crystal ball says perhaps that means it's going to be an interim rule and be effective and then see comment on it um to ensure that they can meet the statutory deadline of august and this is an issue that i mean like you know the you know the China issue is a bipartisan issue up on the Hill in terms of concern around whether it's, you know, you know, the, um, you know, the theft of intellectual property, you know, the potential, you know, risk associated with um, the Chinese products in our IT infrastructure. That's a bipartisan issue and it's not going away anytime soon. So it, feel, it feels a little bit like this 889 the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, CMMC, that yes. duty is biting these really big apples. Instead of taking little bites, they're taking the big bites. And, and it feels like that there's a, a better chance than not that they may end up choking on these. And, and I'm not sure, again, it's very similar to the Jedi conversation we had last segment. Who's pushing these big bites versus, you know, you have another part of DOD, you have another parts of the government who are all about, you know, DevSecOps, right? The little approaches, iterative approaches. Let's take baby steps. Let's crawl, then walk, and then run. Uh, it seems like all DOD wants to do is run, run, run. And, and listen, I understand that there's congressional requirements. I understand 
that there's a deep, deep concern over the supply chain and the impact of the supply chain. And they've, you know, you hear Katie Arrington and others talk about the billions of dollars of intellectual property that have walked out the door over the last decade and, and plus. And I get all that. And I get that's why that's really the impetus to make these changes. But you also, there's, there's, there seems to be a lack of a pragmatic approach to both 889 as well as CMMC, which I know I'm just opening the door to a bigger conversation. Yeah, I think, well, I've heard some people, you know, commentators and others in government talk about, you know, we're at cyber war, really, in terms of, and you mentioned the billions of dollars in intellectual property that have gone out the door and that sort of thing. And, you know, some of the, you know, Congress, you know, Section 89 is, you know, something was included in NDAA. You know, Congress has spoken on the issue. Um, CMMC, um, you know, in moving forward, it does have a phased implementation over time, right? So it does take take several years to get it fully in place. So I think it's a big, like you say, it's a big um, to-do. Um, and they're, they're trying to work and provide some time for it. Um, as well, but I think what it'll be interesting as we follow like things like CMMC, Section 889, and what it means for government procurement, and how the ripple effect in the private sector, and what does it mean for business in general in terms of the integrity of networks and that sort of thing, and you know ensuring security of the supply chain and um, and the IT infrastructure moving forward. You know, is the government now with these cyber issues, with you know the the IT issues around Huawei and other Chinese companies, is the government now going driving and impacting the commercial market and going to actually its requirements are going to drive, you know, the way and impact the commercial market directly um, in a manner that I don't think we've seen in a long time, perhaps. So. And I think a lot of this goes back to cybersecurity issues. I think, you know, there's been, a, been such a big push in the last 15 or 20 years for let's more and more better, better technology without really understanding the cyber implications. And now all of a sudden there's this globalization supply chain concern that DOD is going, okay, hold up. Do we really want this technology in our network? And then now you have banking and electrical and, and uh, water and sewer and all these critical infrastructure going, yeah, maybe that is a good idea. Maybe we don't ne- necessarily want these non-American or at least non-potentially f- friendly companies in our networks. And I, I agree. Um, I, I think CMMC, you're right, is a phased approach, but at the same time, it's also they're trying to do a lot very quickly. And, and, and again, same thing with Section 89. They're trying to make some changes that – uh, again, important changes. I think people would agree, but can they be? What, my question would always be: Can they be done in a more pragmatic approach? Right. Yeah, I thought no. I think nobody disagrees with the goal, right? We want security. We want you know national security protected. We want intellectual property of you know our co- companies, small or large business, um, protected. You know, and I guess the question is, what's the best way to get there? And I think. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. And so last question for you, Jason, and we've got to wrap up. Um, but, you know, and let's sort of return back to the COVID-19, you know, operational discussion, the virtual world we live in now, um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, government operations or just operations gen- generally now. You know, what's the biggest thing that surprised you as you cover – government operations, contractor, you know, support of the government in this new, um, you know, let's use the cliche, this new normal. Um, you know, what's the biggest things that you've seen that surprised you? I, th- I think the two things that stood out to me over the last couple months is the ability for the agencies to react quickly and to move fast. Quick example, uh, I'm, I'm working on something around the IRS and they had employees coming back to work, and they did a one-day procurement to get specifically masks and PPE gear for their employees. And, and you know, you never – maybe one-day procurements are not that big of a deal if you're buying pens or pencils or if you're buying something that's fairly straightforward. But when you're buying something like PPE gear and, and, and you're trying to do it quickly, 
it, it just it stands out to me as when the procurement process when you need it to work for you it works really well and when vendors need to be partners they're really good partners and it leaves me wondering why why can't these changes happen all the time why do we need a crisis to make sure these changes these this not necessarily the good nature of everyone and they want to help but more of that hey look we can get something done we can meet all the rules and requirements and we can get it out the door why can't that happen all the time uh, similar to SBA needing laptops, they went to GSA a couple days later, boom, that was done, the procurement was done. Transportation, there's a similar story I'm working on around transportation department and how they basically upgraded their network, got laptops, got more VPN access, got more uh, licenses in a matter of, of a week instead of months. Uh, I, I, it just, it's a really, a, 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 a makes me feel good of covering this for as long as I have to know that, it's, that, that the people who do their job not only do it well, which I think I've, we've always known for the most part, but can do it fast with a sense of urgency and not lose any of the rigor that people worry so much about. That, that's probably the biggest thing that, that has stood out to me. And then the final thing, Roger, fourth quarter's coming around the corner. I'd love to see how this is going to play out. Will that sense of urgency they have uh, continue? Will, will things slow down? There's a lot of money that's out there, both from the, the stimulus bills, but also because agencies actually got their budgets almost on time. So there, there's something to watch for as we get closer to the end of the fiscal year. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. I'm just, you know, the, is that the next stress test for the new virtual, you know, operating environment we live in? So Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.